So we are actually, and I think now we're in the life of Jesus part four, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, Last week we talked about miracles. I, I dealt a little bit with just sort of the apologetic philosophical side of miracles. Do miracles happen? Are there things in this world that take place that we struggle to understand? I tried to make the case that an open-minded person is going to be open to the possibility that Jesus did miracles. And then I also gave very briefly textual evidence that Jesus did miracles. And I gave a few extra biblical sources showing you that there were people, even in the early centuries, who were not Christians. They weren't persuaded of Jesus. And yet they were convinced that Jesus had done miracles and what they called sorcery. So... One of the things we also needed to talk about, though, is actually what do these miracles actually mean? The fact that Jesus does miracles, uh, are they just an end in themselves? Is Jesus just enjoying doing, uh, doing miracles for the sake of doing miracles? Well, in a sense, yes, because Jesus, when he does these miracles, what is he doing? He's showing mercy to people, right? He's, he's helping people. What you see in the miracles of Jesus is his heart. You see that he cares about blind people. You see that he cares about hungry people. You see that he cares about hurting people. You see that he cares about people who are suffering under sickness and illness. These are all things that he cares about. But even then, those miracles, as much as they show what Jesus' heart is like, they show what his compassion is like, even those are not ends in themselves. So each of the miracles that Jesus does in his ministry, whether it's uh, whether it is healing somebody, whether it is casting out demons, whether it is uh, stilling a storm, whatever it may be, walking on water, whatever it may be, Jesus is showing some element of mastery over the elements of creation. And he's setting himself apart as a prophet of God, but also in many respects as more than a prophet. He's showing that he's not just like all the other prophets who have come before. Let me give you an example about how he shows himself to be more than a prophet. When Jesus stills the storm, he's doing something that no other prophet in the Old Testament did. Because in the Old Testament, what is God seen as? God is seen as the one who's the master of the storm. He's the one who's seen as the master of the sea. And so Jesus does miracles where he that, that, uh, the other, that there's not precedent for among the Old Testament uh, prophets. But you also have other miracles where Jesus is undoing the curse of the fall. So you go back to Genesis chapter 3. You look at what happens. And what does it say is going to happen when Adam and Eve take of the fruit? It says, in the day that you eat of it, you shall, you shall surely die. And, and so death, decay, all of these things that we experience as a regular part of life in this world are things that are consequences of the fall. And so Jesus, then what does he do? He sees death and illness and sickness and blindness and he confronts it. And what does he do? He heals it. He undoes it. He, it's almost like he turns back the clock on the fall. Um, the Bible portrays uh, death as a consequence of sin and as a curse of the fall. John Dickerson, uh, Dick, sorry, it's just Dixon. John Dixon wrote a really good book that I've recommended to you guys before. I'll recommend it again. It's called A, Dider, a, a Doubter's Guide to Jesus. Uh, A Doubter's Guide to Jesus. And John Dixon in the book says this. He says, it is precisely in this biblical context that the healing of Jesus can in large part be understood. Jesus repeatedly healed just the sort of ailments mentioned in the Old Testament. Fever, skin disease, blindness, madness, lameness, and so on. 
This was a sign to ancient Jews that the covenant curses were being lifted from Israel. And then if you read Deuteronomy 28, it runs through the covenant curses, the sort of things that will happen if you sin, if, the, if, you, if you worship idols, if you go into the land and you disobey God. And it's amazing as you go through that list to see the things that Jesus is undoing that are meant to be consequences in Deuteronomy 28 of breaking the covenant. So Jesus is almost rolling back the consequences of the covenant when he does these miracles. Something else about the miracles is they're a foretaste of God's kingdom. What is Jesus doing? He's giving a foretaste of the end of history. As he's walking the earth, as he's giving healing to people, he's, he's reminding us that there's coming a day where he's going to wipe every tear from our eye, where every sorrow is going to be taken care of and dealt with finally in him. And he's giving these people who are living in the first century Israel, he's giving them all a taste of that, the fact that it's coming. And the fact that it's coming and yet it's not final, right? It's not like Jesus suddenly does heal all the sickness in the world. It's reminding us that it's already and it's not yet. It's happening now. The healing is now and it's yet to be completed and it's going to be completed eventually. Um, The idea of these miracles is this, that Jesus is a prophet, but he is not a mere prophet. Um, He's not just a good man. See, this is, what, this is the other thing that people today do. They sort of deflect when it comes to Jesus. They say, I respect Jesus. He's a good man. He's a good teacher. Um, some people might even find some comfort in saying that Jesus was a prophet. Uh, and yet C.S. Lewis talks about the fact that he's not just a prophet and he's also not just a teacher. Because if you just reduce him to a teacher, then you either have to eliminate the miracles or you actually have to, have to admit that he's actually not a very good man. Because if Jesus... If Jesus goes about saying the things about himself that he says, and it's not true, then he's not a good man. You don't get to write Jesus off and say, oh, actually, he was a very good man. and He was a very good teacher. And then you point out some of the things that he said about himself and ask, would a good man say this if it wasn't true? And then you'd be reduced to saying, no, a good man wouldn't say this about himself if it wasn't true. So in the end, you have to ask the question, is Jesus a good man or not? If he's a good man, then he's God. If he's a bad man, then he's lied to everybody. Um, you know the, the old C.S. Lewis trilemma, the pro, uh, what is it? <laughs> Lord, liar, liar. Lord, liar, or lunatic. Um, that's a good, that's actually not a terrible summary of who Jesus could have been. He could be Lord, he could be liar, he could be a lunatic, he could be mistaken about himself. But the idea Lewis is, is giving to us, although, is there's not a middle ground. We, we, everybody wants to have this milk toast sort of, uh, sort of giving with the one hand, taking with the other sort of view of who Jesus is. And the challenge that Lewis is making, I think, is legitimate, which is we need to stop trying to soften up the figure of Jesus so that he's easier to digest and he's more presentable. Instead, the question is, is he who he claimed to be or is he not? Um, I would argue the New Testament's assessment of Jesus is correct. This is a man who's more than a man. He's more than a teacher. Uh, He's the Messiah. He's God in human flesh. It's the only way for him to actually be good and also and not be crazy. I mean, when when people talk about Jesus, with very few exceptions, do they say Jesus was crazy? People don't think that. He doesn't sound like he sounds like the sanest man in the room every time he talks. Uh, He's the guy who's bringing sanity to the room, actually. (laughs) Um, So those 
are the miracles of Jesus, that's a little bit of just a discussion about the, the purpose of his miracles, what they actually say about him. I want to look at the claims of Jesus. So we talked about the teachings of Jesus. We talked about parables. We talked about his method of teaching. We talked about how down to earth he was and the way that he communicated. But then we also have things that he said about himself. Again, these are the very things that, that by the way, make him not a good man if, he, if these aren't true. These are the things that make him villainous if he's, if he's lying. So, first of all, he makes claims about his authority. He makes authority claims. Um, we talked about the fact that he objectively demonstrates authority. He demonstrates authority over spirits, over health, over death, over the natural world. He raises people from the dead. Uh, basically, the sort of authority that very few people in the Old Testament actually exercise. But then he also claims authority to speak for God. So if, when you listen to Jesus in the Gospels, over a hundred times he prefaces what he says with the word truly. He says, truly I say to you. Matthew 5.18 is an example. He says, truly I say to you. Truly I say to you. Um, Jesus has this incredible sense that what he's saying is not just wise and it's not just a good idea. He's not, you know, I'm very perceptive and I understand the world and let me explain something to you that I finally figured out. Instead, he speaks with even greater authority than that. He says, truly, I say to you, when he says that, he's saying, you can be confident that what I'm saying is actually the case. He prefaces it so that you can actually take take him on his own authority. Um, others in Jesus' day didn't teach that way. The rabbis would frequently make appeal to prior rabbis and prior tradition. They would make sure that you understood they were actually not speaking on their own authority. They would be very intentional about talking that way uh, because they were afraid of sounding like Jesus sounds. They don't want to sound like they're, they're speaking from their own authority. And so that's why he talks like that. He talks this way. It sets him apart and it actually makes him a greater draw to the people. It actually says at one place that they came, that they wanted to hear him because he spoke not as they did, but he spoke as having his own authority, his own authority. So he's got the authority to teach. Uh, He talks about the authority to, sorry, he has the authority to forgive sins. So again, we're moving into territory here where any Israelite who's just a rabbi is going to be very uncomfortable to say these sort of things about himself. So would somebody be willing to pull out their Bible and read Matthew 9, 1 through 8? All right. Is that you, Mike? Yes. Okay. Go ahead, Mike. Mike's going to read that for us. Getting into the boat or into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "Take heart, my son; your sins are forgiven." And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, "This man is blaspheming." But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, "Why do you think evil?" in your hearts for which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins he then said to the paralytic rise pick up your bed and go home and he rose and went home when the crowd saw it they were afraid and they glorified god who had given such authority to men 
Okay, so Jesus tells this man, your sins are forgiven you. And then he actually has, think about the conversation that he has with these people. They're all shocked that he says it. They're upset that he says it. There is a stirring in the crowd. Jesus knows that he just said something that a crazy person would say. Like in Israel, they would say, you're a crazy person. You are, you should get out of here, Jesus, because we don't talk that way in Israel. And Jesus feels the reverberations through the crowd. And so he makes an argument. He, he gives them something logical and he gives them something tangible to make the argument as well. Jesus says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Now, if you're in the crowd, what is the answer to that question going to be? Which of those things is easier to say? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because, because what? You can't see it. You, you can't see that the sins are lifted off of him. There's no visible thing that anybody in the crowd could go, oh, yeah, look, now his, his sins are forgiven him, see? Uh, he's walking lighter. He seems like he doesn't have as much on his shoulders now, you know? It's not like that at all. Jesus knows that he just said something that would be difficult to prove that it actually happened. So how does he, how does he propose to objectively show them that he's not crazy and he has the right to do this? He decides to do a miracle that they can tangibly see and they will know if it's not true. Because if he says, get up and walk, and the guy doesn't get up and walk, what does it mean? This guy's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, right? He's, he's going around saying stuff that he doesn't have a right to say. And so then he has the man stand up and walk. And that's when everyone realizes the other things that he's doing, he has the right to say also. So he's, he's corroborating his teaching with the miracle. Because the miracle wouldn't be possible unless his teaching was true. Because God is not going to validate the teaching of someone who's teaching wicked things. Right? He's not going to let this man stand up and walk if he's actually not forgiven. So that's, that's the logic Jesus uses. He's, he's highly intelligent. And you'll notice like, that, that suddenly there's, there's something being said here too, which is that the claims of Jesus can be scrutinized. The claims of Jesus can stand up to argument. Um, the claims of Jesus can stand up to closer examination. This is one of the things that you see in the world around us is it feels like the more you learn about the naturalistic narrative of the universe, the more friction with the universe as we experience it, you see, right? There are things where if you look too close, if you look too, too much, things start to fall apart and things seem to make less sense and things seem, things, things seem to not line up with reality. And Jesus frequently is actually telling people, you can look closer at me. You can actually scrutinize me more. And you are actually going to find the answers the more you look. So he's not afraid to be studied. He's not afraid to be researched, if you want to put it that way. I don't think I like that word. But, you know, he's not afraid for people to look at him and consider what he has to say. Um, At the same time, what do you notice with the Pharisees? They're not open-minded. So when they come to him, they're not coming because they want to know if it's true. They're coming because they want to show how it's not true. And those are two very different postures. And he doesn't open himself up to that. He doesn't put himself under their test when they do things that way. But those are two very different ways to come to Jesus, right? I'm going to show that you're not real. I'm going to show that this isn't true. I'm going to show that you don't have the right to forgive sins. 
Um, and there's the other side which says, who is this man that he even forgives sins? That's what the book of uh, Mark chapter 2 says, right? Jesus forgives somebody's sins and then it says, who can forgive sins but God alone? Like they they reason through this. So Jesus says, I have the authority to teach. I have my own authority. He says, I have the authority to forgive sins. Um, he also claims to have authority at the final judgment. Again, when you want to talk about the sort of claims that Jesus makes that really get, leave Jewish people at the, in the first century rattled, then this is certainly one of them. He says, I have the authority to judge. He claimed that the destiny of human beings depended on how they respond to him. That's, that's a, again, megalomaniac territory. Not a good teacher if it's not true. Not a good man. This is not what a good man says unless it's actually real. So then you go to Mark chapter 8. You read verses 35 to 38. Look how self-centered he is in how salvation takes place. Listen to this. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in the adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. I mean, we might be used to reading that in church. But think about how, think about how that sounds. <laughs> think about how bad that sounds if it's not true. If you're ashamed of me, then God's not going to receive you, right? If, you, if you're ashamed of me, then God's going to say that you're guilty of sin. Um, you have Matthew 10, 32. Whoever publicly acknowledges me, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. In other words, acknowledge me or God's not going to recognize you. That's, a, that's the kind of claim that Jesus makes. He's, he says he's the final judge in Matthew 25, 31. He says, at the final, at the final day, I'm going to be the one that stands in judgment over you. Again, is that just a good man? No, it's not. Um, <clears throat> these aren't words of a mere prophet, and they're not words of a mere good teacher. Remember, with these teachings, he's distinguishing himself from all the prophets that came before. With these words, Elijah never talked like this. Moses never talked like this. Isaiah never talked like this. Jeremiah never talked like this. These men always pointed outside of themselves. They always pointed outside to God. What is Jesus doing? He's pointing at himself constantly. He's so different from the other prophets. He functions like a prophet. He, he, he speaks like a prophet. Uh, and then he says these sort of things. And you realize that he doesn't see himself that way. He doesn't see himself in the same class as these other people. At once he's a man. And at once he says, I'm also the judge. I'm also the way. I'm also the truth. I'm also the life. Prophets don't talk like this. He's different. He also used messianic titles. So he, he's got this authority here. He applies titles to himself. Uh, in the Hebrew, the word is Messiah, Mashiach. Uh, the, the Greek, it's, the word is Christ. When I was a kid, I just thought Christ was his like, second name. I thought it was his, his last name. Um, but no, Christ just means anointed. It means Messiah. It means anointed one. Um, to be anointed was to be set aside for God's purposes. In, uh, in Mark 14.62, Caiaphas is talking to Jesus and he asked Jesus, are you the Christ? He wants to know, are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? Are you the one that, that all these Israelites have been waiting for? And Jesus says, I am. That's how he responds. He says, I am. I am the Christ. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. Now kill me. He's, and, they, and they do. 
So this is how he understood himself. He understood himself to be the Messiah. He understood himself to be the one Israel is waiting for. And, you know, you can just see all these things piling up, piling up. This is not just a prophet. This is not just a man. This is not just a good man. This is not just a good teacher. He's got to be more than that. Or he's a bad man and a bad teacher. Um, So he uses the title Christ. Uh, He also uses the, the title Son of Man. Talks about himself in the third person with that designation, Son of Man. He gets that from Daniel 7. If you go to the book of Daniel, you read Daniel chapter 7, you see this Messiah figure sent by God appearing in Daniel 7, and Jesus chooses it as his favorite self-designation. This is how he talks about himself. He says, I'm the one that's there in Daniel chapter 7. I'm the one that comes on the clouds. I'm the one who is bringing God's message. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. Uh, Here's uses another title. Son of God. We have people in our culture even know that Jesus is the Son of God. They hear that he's called the Son of God at the very least. I want you to think well about the idea of someone being son. When we hear son in the Western society, we think of somebody who's, who's a lesser, a lesser version of the father. Uh, that's, our, that's our idea in Western culture. Um, if I'm the son of someone, I am supposed to show due respect to him, which means that he's greater and I'm lesser. But in Israelite society, a son wasn't less than his father. He was an equal of his father. It's very different than the Western society. So if you were a son, you had a right to all that was your father's because you came from him. In essence, you guys are parallel. You and your father are parallel with each other because you came from the same, same you're the same person in a sense. Um, you are equal with one another. He's not greater than you. You're just different. And... So when Jesus calls himself son of God, he's not saying I'm less than God. He's saying he's equal to God. For an Israelite to hear that, that's what they're going to hear. They're not going to hear that he's, that he's less than the father or less than God. They're going to hear it the way that he intends it to be. Uh, Romans 1, 3 through 4, Jesus, or Paul calls Jesus son of God. In Mark 13, 32, Jesus calls himself the son of God. This is a title that he uses of himself as well. Uh, he also calls himself Lord. Lord is a word, the word kurios in Greek. Uh, it's a term of respect. It's a term of authority. When you read through your New Testament, sometimes you will see, actually, sorry, I'm wrong. When you're reading through the Old Testament and you hear, you see the name Lord and you see it in all caps, that means Yahweh. That's the divine name. Lowercase is Adonai. It's a term of uh, kingly term. It's a term of respect. When the New Testament uses the word kurios, it's the same. It's not the word for, for God. It's the word for somebody who's a greater than you, somebody who uh, you're showing deference to. Um, but here's the interesting thing. If you read in Mark 12, let's see if I can pull it up. Okay, so Mark chapter 12. Jesus makes this really interesting textual argument. I love the arguments that Jesus makes from text, the text of scripture because you can tell he's a close reader of the text and you can tell that he's really meditated on that text and he's really thought about it. Listen to the argument that he makes in Mark 12, 35. So it says, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? 
So he's now going to quote from Psalm 110. He's going to quote from Psalm 110. And, he, and he's going to make the argument that he is the Lord who's spoken of in this passage. So he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So D- Jesus says, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? So if you actually go and you actually look at the passage... The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand. So Jesus is quoting a passage that said that Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus is, if you actually read the logic, if you think about the logic of what Jesus is actually saying here, he is actually saying that he is the Yahweh spoken of in the passage. He's making a stronger argument than just, I'm David's son. He's saying, I'm David's son, and I'm his God. So he uses this term, Lord, kurios. And then you see that he makes an even stronger argument if you read him closely. Um, He also calls himself God. He is referred to explicitly as God in John... 858. It's just racy territory. Um, now, again, we're not actually talking about John's gospel. I'm going to do a separate lesson on John's gospel. We're talking about the synoptics, but I still want to read it to you just because I'm just trying to... I don't mind cheating a little, you know? We don't have to have hard and fast rules. Sometimes you just... Sneak out a little bit. Um, in John eight fifty eight, Jesus is talking to the, the Pharisees. And uh, the Jew, they say to him, now we know that you have a demon. Because, now again, notice how they resort to settling who Jesus is, right? Their solution is not you're a good man. <laughs> like they don't, they don't hear Jesus teach and go, you know, you're a very good man, Jesus, but you're not who you say you are. They, because they have to give a stronger explanation of how somebody could be the way this guy is. So their answer is, he's a demon, which nobody modern actually goes with that answer. And that's the people who are closest to him at the moment and the most critical of him. That's where they go. So they say, you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Right? You're appealing to your own word, you're appealing to your own authority, your own teaching, and you're saying that if you believe this, you're saved forever. That's demonic. That's how they, that's how they explain this. And then Jesus said, they say, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? This is all about who he is. And then Jesus said, answered, if I... Glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me. So he's basically saying, this is not about me. This is about God and what God says about me. And then you go down to verse 58 and just says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you. A good man doesn't say what he's about to say. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So he's making, he's applying the divine title to himself. He's saying, I am. This is, this is, if you try to do a raw translation of Yahweh from the Old Testament and bring it over, you're going to come up with some kind of translation like this. He applies it to himself. The grammar is wrong on purpose. 
Even for a Greek-speaking person, this is bad grammar. Jesus is using bad grammar, and he's saying, I am. I am Yahweh. You know how I know what Abraham did? You know how I am so intimately aware of Abraham? You guys want to know? The answer is because I am. Because I am the God who lives. He's making a divine claim. Again, not a good man. Not a good man if he's lying. Not a good man if he's mistaken. He says, truly I say to you, I am. And so what is he doing here? He's claiming divine authority for himself. Now, if you go over to the synoptic gospels, you find divine claims and they're, they're softer. Or at least they're more implicit. So he calls himself by terms in the synoptic gospels. Which, which ones are the synoptic gospels again? Just keep, keep us all up to date. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So if you're reading Matthew, Mark, or Luke, what you find is Jesus speaks of himself and acts in ways that only would be appropriate for God. For example, he forgives sins. He claims God's authority. He claims God's knowledge. Uh, he claims to know things about God that aren't revealed in Scripture. Uh, he claims to know uh, that he's the bridegroom and he claims that he's the shepherd. He takes these titles that God gives himself in the Old Testament and puts them on himself. Calling himself the bridegroom, that's what God calls himself in the Old Testament. He says, that's me, I'm the bridegroom. Uh, he claims superior supremacy over things like the law, over the temple. He claims that he has a unique father-son relationship with God. All of these things lead to the conclusion of John eight fifty eight that he is I am. Now, does it say it as blatantly? Does it give you the proof text that sometimes people want us to have? No, no I mean, you have, he, makes, he makes his listeners work. Um, he did not see himself as a good man. He didn't see himself as a prophet. He, he didn't just see himself as a rabbi. He was these things, and he was more. Uh, he claimed things and showed traits that only belong to God. So that's Jesus. Uh, that's his authority. Those are his titles. And I hesitate to go on to the next section, because the next section I want to talk about is the death of Jesus. I want to talk about the date of his death. I want to talk about... Uh, the evidence for the resurrection. I want to talk about how he died, the charges that were made against him, why he was executed. Um, and I think it would be best to put those off till next week because we only have four minutes left. Michael. Uh, it may spoil some of the thunder for next week, but under authority, <clears throat> not only had authority to teach, forgive, and to judge, but one of the key claims of his miracles is he had authority over resurrection. And so he says... Resurrected the dead, but he also said, I have authority to lay down my life and to take it up again. Mm-hmm. Right? It's almost another category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he doesn't say, I have the authority to ask God to raise me up. He says, I can take my life up. Mm-hmm. So it's again, like a very megalomaniacal, not a good man. Like, I'm going to keep going back to the not a good man thing. And I, it's because I actually do think he's a good man. But if you reduce him to that, then none of this makes sense. Well, and no, no. Jews would think they have authority to lay down their life. Right? That, that's not, it's not mine to give. The yeah. commandment says to preserve your own life and preserve the life of others. Yeah. So someone saying they have the authority to lay down their life is, is a unique prerogative of it. Hmm. Yeah. So we'll stop there because I don't want to tread into the resurrection territory just yet. I want to spend some time on that. Uh, I'll give you some background on the on the uh, not only on the resurrection, but also 
the significance of Jesus' death. So we'll talk about how he interprets his death. We'll talk about how he explains what his own death means. Um, all of these things, again, leading you to something more than just a, hey, what a great man. We don't, I, that is the thing I, I want you to avoid. Uh, and I want to try to dispel that the best that I can. So uh, let me pray for us. And we will get out before the kids for once. How's that sound? <laughs> Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for his people. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that as he came and spoke and taught and indeed did miracles, that he did not leave us with the option of just seeing him as a nice man, a good man, but rather he actually fought against that tendency within us to reduce him to that. And left and right, we see that he indeed was and taught that he was more than that, that he is indeed your very son, the Lord, the Christ, the Messiah, the long expected one. And so we pray that we would take hold of him, Lord. That's why he came. He came so that we would seize hold of him by faith and that we would have peace with you through him. Would you give us that peace with God? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.